0: Good, I love a good Lectio. Hey, you're moving again. Um, So, questions are okay, so ask them. You ask, we tackle. We don't guarantee an answer, but we tackle the question. So the question for this week is, why Jesus? Why didn't we let Jesus go? So a lot of us around here, uh, we've deconstructed our faith and we've let a lot of stuff go, and we realize that a lot of the answers we were raised with don't make sense to us anymore. especially after we learn to read the Bible uh, differently, which Aurelia talked about last week, and I'm really sad that I have to follow that sermon because I listened to it on my drive and it was really great. Um, Or maybe we learn about liberation theology, or perhaps we heal from spiritual trauma, So many of us in this room, I've spoken to you and I know that we have sifted chaff from our faith. So, why do we keep talking about Jesus around here? And why is it that we think that Jesus is so special? And why is Jesus so special amongst all the other spiritual teachers out there, whom a lot of us are actually at this point able to admit said some similar things? So in recent years, I have felt the freedom to veer off and study other world religions and wisdom traditions because I've moved away personally from this idea that I was raised with, which is that it's sinful or heretical to seek wisdom anywhere else but the Bible. I just don't believe that anymore. I think the sacred is everywhere, and the world is full of wisdom for seekers to find, and as a result, I have listened and read more widely than I ever have in my life. And I've discovered great beauty. I have discovered beauty in many of the world's wisdom traditions, most especially for me within Buddhism and Native American traditions, and some of the Vedic traditions as well. But I can't quit Jesus. Jesus is the sole reason that I didn't quit Christianity years ago. And I would like to tell you this morning why. Some of my own personal reasons why and my reasons for loving jesus are many and they are often mystical because i have had some personal mystical experiences of jesus that are very important to me and were very formative for me but i think that i can distill my reasons down to a few words and i'm going to tell you what they are right off the bat beauty forgiveness wounds incarnation and oneness and it may help you to think. Well, well, I think I'm going to give like a mini homily for each of those words. Okay? So it may help you to just organize that in your mind. And hey, okay, if by some miracle you catch the bug of loving Jesus from me, then that'll be great. So, beauty. At their best all of the major wisdom traditions of the world aim to move humanity away from duality and toward unity consciousness. In other words, away from this idea that, uh, this idea of separation from God and creation and toward this ideal of unity or oneness with God and creation. And I'm gonna talk more about that later, um, but this is a theme that's echoed in all the wisdom traditions of the world. And this is what religion, at its best, does. It honors and points to oneness and joy. Religions, of course, have had a historical tendency to get distorted away from this ideal. And because we humans, we have a hard time letting go of our illusion of separation, and we impose upon the tradition our own need for revenge or power or reputation or wealth, etc. And so, The religion gets skewed away from its original wisdom, and this is a common pattern from which Christianity is no exception. Case in point, the Crusades. But here's an interesting thing that I've learned. All of the world's religions, almost without exception, regard the Christ, our Christ, our very own Christ, from which Christianity springs as a person of beauty and importance. Jesus and his mother Mary can be found in the Quran. Hindu folks tell stories of the prophet Ishu who was born in a cow shed and was visited by three holy men and did various miracles like walk on water and preached a sermon on a mountain. And they believe that he was a holy one, an incarnation of God, as do we. Even my new age friends, many of whom I respect deeply and know personally, Look to Jesus. New Age literature often mentions Jesus as a mediating principle between divinity and humanity, and a spiritually advanced human being. Just a few weeks back, I was attending a meditation retreat. And in between the sections of the retreat, it was like an all-day thing.
1: And in between the sections, I was waiting
0: in the line for the bathroom, as we're wont to do. And behind me, a gal was standing, and we were chatting. We were just just chatting, and she told me that she was some sort of kind of new-agey practitioner. I'm not, I don't exactly remember what she said. Um, and she asked me what I do, and the words came out of my mouth, which is still kind of weird for me. I said, I'm a pastor. <laughs> but I'm still getting used to saying those words. I'm a pastor. And she goes, she goes oh, of like, like a Unitarian church? <laughs> and I was like, and I go, well, I don't think I've ever actually been to a Unitarian church. But my guess is my church is more Jesus-y than that. And she goes, she puts her hands together like this, and she goes, oh, yay, Jesus. And I was like, yes, exactly. Yay, Jesus. That's what I want to hear out of people. But the point is that Jesus is not just winsome to us. He is universally beautiful and winsome, and his charisma left its mark on the whole world, not just on Christianity. And professing self-proclaimed Christians are not the only ones who look to Christ as an example and a teacher of how to live well in the world. Jesus is beautiful, and beauty is important important to the human spirit and to human health and well-being and beauty is something we naturally gravitate toward because we need beauty beauty is necessary for humanity and for its thriving and its wholeness and our wisdom tradition that is christianity is built upon the beauty of the person of christ and his beauty is most stunningly articulated in that famous sermon on the mountain in which he gives us the Beatitudes and the liturgy of the Lord's Prayer and the Golden Rule, among other landmark teachings. Blessed are the peacemakers. Don't repay violence with violence. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the poor. These are the hallmarks of a beautiful message of Christ that stands in stark contrast to the values and priorities of worldly political, economic, And military power. And that beauty is most stunningly exemplified in the resurrection. In one of my favorite books by Brian Zahn, which I'm meant to bring, it's called Beauty Will Save the World, he says this, and he's talking about the work of Christ on the cross and the resurrection, which Christ did, quote, so that the violent ways of the principalities and powers might be exposed and extinguished by the truth of unquenchable love. They had been exposed, and God had been revealed. God is beautiful. God is love. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus, says BZ. Christ is drawing humanity into a new orbit, an orbit around himself and his redeeming love, and all of this is beautiful. So, that concludes One of the most beautiful aspects of what Jesus did and taught is forgiveness. Jesus did two things that most angered the religious teachers of his time and place. He healed on the Sabbath, and he proclaimed that he could forgive sins. He said that he could forgive sins, and that, this made him pretty mad. Now, around here, you don't hear us talking about sin a whole lot. And it's not because we don't believe in it or think we do it. It's more because some of us have been so traumatized by being guilted and shamed. And we're just done with it. We don't think that we have to dwell on sin or beat each other over the head with it. Because we heard Jesus proclaim the forgiveness of sin. And I'm always going back to that beautiful moment in John 20. In John 20, Jesus appears to the disciples after the resurrection And he says three super important things. The first is, peace be with you. The second is, he breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So I take that to mean, that we as followers of Christ should get out there and forgive some stuff. We were taught that the gospel is Jesus died for your sins. But then we read a little bit more carefully, and now we understand that the gospel is this. Jesus came to bring God's kingdom to earth, and forgiveness is baked into the cake. And part of our mission here on earth is to go around telling people, your sins are forgiven. And we take this seriously. Like, Like here, I'll say it right now. You can let go of the religious shame and guilt and damnation that you were taught because your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Confess your sins and face them authentically because there's nothing unforgivable. And you'll feel a hell of a lot lighter when you do. Everything you ever worried might separate you from God is null and void because Jesus declared it to be so. Please hear me. B.Z. says this, he says, he lived his sermon all the way to the end and loved relentlessly. He loved the world, a world that had rejected him. He loved his disciples who would forsaken him. He loved his enemies who had crucified him, and he forgave them all. From the cross, Jesus spoke, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. In Christ, the world no longer revolves around the lie of power-enforced by violence in Christ, the world is now recentered around the beautiful truth of love expressed in forgiveness. Hallelujah. Yeah. Wounds. Right after Jesus says the three important things in John 20, remember, peace be with you, here's my spirit, receive it, and get out there and do some forgiving. He has this encounter with Thomas, the doubter. And like so many of us, Thomas needs some tactile proof that Jesus has done what it seems like he has. And to me, the miracle of it is not that Jesus is so so patient about the doubt. Like, I kind of expect that from him by now. It's not how I would respond, but it seems in character for him. (laughs) The hours and the days after his resurrection, before he ascends uh, to heaven have in scripture this dreamlike quality so many amazing things happen but the thing that most endears christ to me in that time is that he keeps his wounds in his body like we presume that he could have miraculously healed those wounds while he was doing the business of resurrecting his body. We presume that it would be easy for him, in all his power, to knit a few measly puncture wounds up, but he keeps them. He keeps his wounds. And he allows his friend Thomas to put his hands inside the wounds. My friends, life has dealt me many wounds, some of which... I may not fully recover from until I'm on the other side. And I'm sure that many of you can say the same. If you've seen Hannah Gadsby's Gadsby's Nanette, which we're constantly quoting around here because it's so brilliant, you may remember the moment when she's telling part of her her life story, which is of growing up as a gay, non-gender conforming person in 1990s Tasmania. It was not progressive, let me tell you. And she's telling this wrenching story of the hurt she's suffered and why she feels compelled to tell the story. And at one point she says, this haunting line. She says, I will never thrive. Meaning she's been wounded so severely and is so deeply traumatized by things that have happened to her that she feels certain she will never recover enough to have abundant life. This line haunts me. Because even though I haven't lived through what Hannah has lived through, I can still identify with that feeling, that fear that I will never thrive, that I might never heal, that I might never recover and never move on. Have you felt that? And the Christ gets up from his grave, still wearing his wounds. We could look at that as a As hopeless. We could look at it as, oh, Christ is never going to heal either. We could look at it as a failure. We could look at it as a failure to perfect. But I look at it and I see a person who understands trauma, a person who understands desperation and degradation and humiliation and rejection. He is not ashamed of his wounds. He is not ashamed to put them in view of his friends and say, here, touch me where it hurts. Touch me where it's still bleeding. I see a person who doesn't forget what suffering means and how it changes a person and how it damages a person, and yet this person is alive in every possible way. I don't believe it's true that Hannah Gadsby will never thrive. I think there's always hope for healing and restoration, and the path to it is never easy or even simple. She may never find the path or choose it, and that's fine. But for me, the best model I have of how to make sense of pain and trauma, how to experience agony and redemption exists in the body Of Christ, I can't say that to you any plainer than that. And if I want to follow in the path of Christ, I will have to accept that the journey is transformation. I will have to accept that no one gets a pass on experiencing pain and that the human choices that led us to the human condition mean we live in a world of contrast, of light and dark, good and evil, joy and pain. And into this landscape of intense contrast, here comes Jesus gathering it all up and bringing it into harmony. Hallelujah. Incarnation. This is our fourth homily. Okay, the Gospel of John begins with the words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But, who all, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. Moving forward. And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory and full of grace and truth. No one's ever seen God. It's God the only Son who's close to the Father's heart, who has made God known. And our lectionary text for today, which is also from John's gospel, has Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And the crowd that's gathered is complaining that he's had the audacity to say that he is bread from heaven. Believe in me, and I'll show you, he says. And this word believe, which is found all throughout John's gospel, in the Greek, is pistulo. And in John's Gospel, it's translated as simply, in most translations, it's simply belief. But scholars say that it more accurately conveys an idea of a trusting, committed relationship. We churchy people have too often reduced that idea of belief to mere intellectual assent. Like, if you think it's true and you're willing to say so out loud, then poof, done. You're saved. But that's kind of reductionist, right? And we could, we could preach a whole sermon about what does it mean to have a committed, trusting relationship with Jesus. But what I'm trying to get at with all this talk about, of Jesus being the word and bread is this. Christianity makes a bold and radical claim. And that is that the founder of our faith was actually God who took on flesh. It was actually God, or part of God, who arrived in a really humble way, lived the humble life of a peasant saint and spiritual teacher, and did this so we could better understand God, and so we could know, hey, God is not as far away as we think. God is as close as bread in your belly. God is as close as a babe in its mother's womb. God is as close as death. God is as close as breathing. And the thing that Jesus made it a point to say over and over again is, the kingdom of God is near. The community of God is near to you. And you're part of it. It's right here. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us right here, as near as our breath, as near as the air we breathe, as necessary as bread, as integral as light and dirt. Hallelujah. Last mini homily. Oneness. And this, the talk of incarnation, brings me to oneness or unity. If you listen to Father Rohr much, you'll hear this term from him, which is the cosmic Christ. Which is the Christ that has existed from the beginning, beyond the 30-some years Jesus existed on the earth. The Christ, the aspect of what we now call the Trinity, that existed before time began, and through whom all things were made. The first chapter of Hebrews says... He's the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. And the first chapter of Colossians says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and earth were created, things visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and in him all things hold together. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So we get from these scriptures this idea of Christ as a big picture consciousness, like a big idea. But that big idea briefly rested his feet on the earth in the form of a human for the purpose of showing us what God is like in a way that we can understand and connect with. And the most important idea to that, uh, that's attached to that, is that. We are not separate from Christ. Jesus, the human aspect of the cosmic Christ, the big idea of Christ, because hear those words, in him all things hold together. At Gethsemane, right before he's arrested, remember he goes to Gethsemane to pray. And he spends some time there, and he's anguishing in prayer. He's not just like, lightly praying he's like sweat drops of blood praying and here's what he prays he prays as you god are in me and i'm in you may they also be in us so that they may be one as we are one i in them you and me that they may be come completely one jesus the man spends crucial time in the hours before his death praying that his followers will realize their oneness with God. And I believe that prayer extends down through the ages to us here today. We also hear Jesus say in Matthew 25, if you're interested, remember when he says, like, when you gave that one a cup of water, you gave me a cup of water. And and when you visited that one in prison, you visited me in prison. And when you fed and clothed this one, you fed and clothed me they're not separate from me says jesus they are me they are me they are me duality and separation are illusions that we accepted as truth when we ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil father Roar says the only thing that separates you from god is the idea that you're separated from god it's The thought of it and I, do you think do we think that yahweh said no To Jesus' request that we would become one, I don't think she said no. So, the good gospel is this you can stop believing the lie that you are separated from God and eternal life. The Christ is in God, and we are in Christ, and we are one. We are at one with God. And the sooner we realize this is our true identity, and start living into it, the the sooner we can get about the business of doing the work of the kingdom, the community of God. Because in Christ, all things hold together, and we are a part of that together. We believe that Jesus is alive and eternally at one with God, and we are at one with them. This is Christian Orthodox. It is the view that we embrace here at Peace of Christ Church as we seek to be the hands and feet, the body of Christ on earth here now, where we are inhabited and inspired and enlivened by the spirit and the ethos of Christ, the big idea of Christ. So, um, I, I have deconstructed my faith deconstructed it down to the foundation, down past the studs. I've questioned everything I can think to question, and I'm probably not even done yet, because I haven't even thought of all the questions yet. But in the wake of it all, Jesus has not failed me. At every question, Jesus has remained present and open-minded and curious and non-judgmental and patient. Even when I felt like I wanted to punch him in the face, he has just been present and fine. And that is why I can't quit Jesus. I can read the Tao, and I can read the Bhagavad Gita, and I can read the Dhammapada, and find plenty of stuff to agree with and plenty of wisdom, but none of it captures my heart like the story Of Jesus the Christ the story of infinite God loving and walking alongside humanity as one of us as the humblest of the humble the one who loves humanity so much that he allows it to do its worst to him and forgives it and the lesson that God is close by the truth that lets us move beyond the illusion of separation To oneness. This is a beautiful teaching. And it is a beautiful, amazing.